But I think the thing we have to remember, um, I mean, the unfortunate news is that about 40% of us, four in every 10 people, are going to get cancer in their lifetime. We can make our chances worse. I mean, you can smoke cigarettes and increase your, your risk of lung cancer 20-fold. But even if you don't do that, you still have a very substantial chance that you're going to get cancer in your lifetime. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I'm returning to explore the truth about the Chernobyl disaster. I have the great fortune in this episode to interview one of the physicians who treated the exposed workers in Moscow following the Chernobyl meltdown and explosion. Let's see what he thinks about the health risks of nuclear power. If you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app. I'd love to hear from you. Come join our group, our Facebook group, The Rational View, and seek me out on social media. I'd love to hear your comments, your concerns, and your ideas for new episodes. Thank you. Dr. Robert Gale was born in New York in 1945. He received his MD from the State University of New York at Buffalo and a PhD in microbiology and immunology from the University of California, Los Angeles. After that, Gale was on the faculty of the UCLA School of Medicine and served as chairman of the Scientific Advisory Committee of the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research, and later chaired the Scientific Advisory Board of the Center for Advanced Studies in Leukemia. He was also president of the Armand Hammer Center for Advanced Studies in Nuclear Energy and Health. Gale is currently a visiting professor of hematology at Sun Yat-sen Cancer Center, Guangzhou, China and Honorary Professor of Hematology at the Institute of Hematology at Peking Union Medical College. In addition to these duties, he is the Editor-in-Chief of Leukemia, Associate Editor of Clinical Transplantation, and Executive Editor of Bone Marrow Transplantation, as well as a reviewer for many scientific journals. Professor Gale is also an an expert on the medical response to nuclear and radiation accidents. From 2007 to 2019, he was Executive Director of Clinical Research and Development at Celgene Corporation and an honorary member of the Russian and Chinese Academies of Medical Science. He's a recipient of several distinguished awards and honorary degrees, including the Presidential Award and an Emmy Award. Dr. Gale has published over 1,350 scientific articles and 25 books on medical topics, nuclear energy and weapons, and politics of U.S.-Russian relations. His latest book is Radiation, What It Is and What You Need to Know. Dr. Gale, welcome to The Rational View. Yes, well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate you taking the time to come and talk with us about your experiences. Now, you, uh, as as a 
radiation expert back in the 80s were actually uh, invited to come to Moscow in the immediate aftermath of the, the Chernobyl disaster to help the Soviets treat the, uh, the injured. Uh, many people would be surprised to know that an American doctor was invited to treat injuries from the disaster, beings that the Russians, the Soviets were so um, uh, covering it up at first. Uh, how did this come about? Well, uh, I have uh, had very long-term relationship with um, Soviet Union going back to the 1970s. And uh, I knew many of the Soviet leaders, uh, including Mr. Gorbachev, who I had met previously at the funeral of um, Mr. Andropov, who was the general secretary. Um, and um, <clears throat> so when the accident happened, um, you know, I, I had been studying uh, the Russian nuclear program for some years, uh, but also the medical program. I had colleagues in, in Russia who um, were involved in, in treating leukemia and in, involved in doing transplants. So um, <clears throat> I was aware uh, that they did not have the expertise um, or the resources to properly treat um, th this huge number of victims. And so um, what I did was, uh, as head of this international transplant organization, um, I contacted, or I had actually Armin Hammer contact Mr. Gorbachev and say that I was willing to come to, to the Soviet Union and to help. Um, of course, as you point out, we were in the middle of the Cold War. Um, nuclear issues are sensitive. Uh, nuclear accidents are sensitive. So um, I wasn't, I would say, incredibly optimistic that the Soviets would respond. But um, very soon thereafter, within a few days of the accident, maybe three days of the accident, I got a call from uh, Anatoly Dobrynin, who was the Soviet ambassador to the United States for forever. And he, he called me in the middle of the night and he said, well, Mr. Gorbachev would like you to come to Moscow. Um, of course, I was a little bit surprised that he said Moscow and not Kiev. Um, at the time, I didn't know that the most seriously injured people had been flown to Moscow, but um, off I went, and I arrived the next day in uh, in Moscow. Did you have any idea of the scale of the disaster at that time? Did were you prepared for what you saw when you got to Moscow? Uh, well, I mean, of course, this is the largest uh, accident of this type previously. We dealt with. Uh, you know, other accidents of a much smaller scale. So, um, you know, I, I didn't really have that. I mean, I knew it was a large scale accident. I did, had no idea of the number of people um, that were involved and how severely affected they were. But the very next morning, I arrived at night in Moscow and the very next morning, um, 
I've met my colleagues at, uh, at a hospital that's part of the Institute of Biophysics. So sort of a, I would say high security hospital uh, surrounded by army and uh, so forth and so on. And we did a quick tour of the, I would say approximately 200, well, initially around 250 people that had been flown to Moscow. And um, of course, um, so I had a, an idea of the scale of the accident, not entirely because um, it, it took me two or three weeks to get them to Chernobyl after the accident. But I, you know, our, our major actions, activities with, uh, with Russian colleagues were in, in Moscow for the first two or three weeks. And so there were something like 250 uh, patients uh, that were in Moscow that had suffered acute radiation poisoning. Were these all cases of acute radiation poisoning? Well, I mean, one of these, this type of accident um, is very complex because, uh, you know, when you have um, an explosion, not a nuclear explosion, but you have an explosion of a reactor uh, exposing the fuel, um, in addition to the, the radiation effects, of course, you have the effects of the explosion you have uh, burning materials. So you have uh, thermal injuries layered on top of radiation injuries, layered on top of chemical industries, uh, injuries. And, um, you know, most people uh, are exposed to all three simultaneously. You know, for example, if you're a firefighter and you go rushing into this, uh, fire. Of course, um, you think you're just putting out a fire. You know, you're not thinking that you're being exposed to radiation. So you, you have uh, the, the effects of the fire, you have the smoke from the fire, you have burst pipes, you know, releasing steam and things causing thermal injuries. But then on top of that, you have radiation and different people you know, have different combinations of these toxicities. Most people have several, but the my focus was on the people with the highest radiation dose. I mean, uh, we had other specialists there, you know, surgeons and um, kidney specialists and lung specialists that can deal with these other effects. But um, my focus and the focus of my team, my Soviet American team, our focus was on tackling the, the radiation related damage. Now, why did, the, why did the Soviets need an American doctor to come and help them with, with this? Were they not uh, familiar with the, the effects of the radiation? No, I mean, the let me separate the, the doctors from the, uh, from the patients. Uh, you know, the doctors, the Soviets have had a nuclear program since 1949, and they have their own, I mean, any one of these nuclear programs, ours and theirs, where you're developing nuclear weapons, where you're uh, 
developing nuclear grades, fuels, things like that, you know, you're going to have accidents. So there are lots and lots and lots of accidents that we have had, that the Soviets have had in the course of their development. So from 19, let's say 1949 to 1983, uh, you know, you've got 30 years of experience. But these are typically small scale events. So uh, at the Institute of Biophysics, and particularly at this hospital number six, there, there were a team of physicians that I worked with that I knew that uh, had extensive experience in dealing with small, small scale, uh, typically lower dose radiation exposures. They had, they had very good skills, um, but not something of this magnitude and not something, you know, requiring the kind of very high technology that we were able to bring in. Now, uh, of course, there's the issue of the Soviet patients. You know, how did these people react to seeing an American in the middle of Moscow? Well, I mean, of course, uh, like any patient, uh, some doctor from a foreign country comes with the aim of helping you. You're very, very happy <laughs> to have their your presence. So my my Soviet my Soviet colleagues and and their patients, you know, were very very um, accepting and very kind and very very pleased uh, that we were trying to help them. So these were basically um, uh, first responders that you were involved with treating, uh, and some of them had very high levels of radiation exposure. Um, what is What was the prognosis of these people? Did you have any idea of how much exposure they had or did you just have to work from the symptoms? Well, um, with regard to radiation uh, damage, um, you know, we use a variety of approaches. The, the critical thing for us is we, we need to know the dose. So, um, you know, we use a variety of approaches to try to estimate the dose as best we can. So uh, we have, you know, computations that we make from using computer-based models. They were fundamentally not useful in this situation. We have physical dosimetry. You know, if someone is wearing a radiation badge, um, which none of these firefighters were, um, but there are other other things we can measure, um, like some things in um, pieces of clothing or some of their enamel from their teeth. We can use that to estimate the radiation dose and. But mostly what we have done in the Chernobyl accident is rely on what's called biological dosimetry. So, you know, we can look at their blood counts. We can measure the cells in their blood every day and we, they're going to they're going to fall. They're going to decline. And based on prior accidents, looking at the rate that the blood counts fall, 
we can uh, make some estimate of what their dose of radiation was. But it's a, I have to say, it's, it's just an estimate. We also do things, we look in their urine to see if there is any evidence they were exposed to neutron radiation, things like that. And we look in their, uh, in their bone marrow for changes in the chromosomes. Radiation causes some distinct changes in chromosomes. So uh, fundamentally, we have uh, computational methods, we have physical methods, and we have biological methods. And we put those all together and we try to estimate the dose, but it's, it has a very wide range. Um, but as I mentioned before, um, knowing the radiation dose is only part of the decision-making process because we, we have to estimate what's the effects of their burns, what's the effects of their chemical injuries, and so forth. So it's a complex process. I would say it is more art than it is science. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, it's definitely a, a unique situation that you were in. So I think many people when hearing about acute radiation burns would think that, uh, you know, everyone's a goner. What what was your success rate in treating these, these injured uh, first responders? Right. So um, I would say just offhand, we, we had roughly 204 people that were exposed to what we would consider potentially dangerous radiation doses. Um, and we, you know, we use a variety of interventions. Some of the people are going to recover. They just need to be supported. They need transfusions. Uh, they need uh, intravenous fluids. Um, they need antibiotics. They may need antiviral drugs. So that's, that's most of the people. And then when we step up our intervention, the next level, we use uh, something, um, these molecularly cloned hormones, uh, what we call the molecularly cloned hematopoietic growth factors. This is sort of like if you think about thyroid hormone stimulated the thyroid gland. Uh, you know, my colleagues and I have identified and molecularly cloned and that drug companies have produced these uh, hormones that make the bone marrow recover. So our next, you know, step up is to give these molecularly cloned uh, growth factors. And uh, except for me and one other Soviet doctor, the Chernobyl victims were the first humans to get these. These drugs had never been used in humans before. We had used them in mice and dogs and monkeys, but not in humans. So we were able to bring them into the Soviet Union from Switzerland and to use them to treat some of the victims. Then the, the final step up in this escalation is to, um, to try to decide 
if you need to replace the bone marrow. And, you know, that is complicated. It requires someone to be identified as being a donor. Um, we've got to purify the cells from the donor, which required bringing people from the United States and from Israel into Russia. Um, and then we do a transplant. So if we, if we take all of these people, 204, um, unfortunately, 29 of them died. Um, not, not all, only from radiation injury. You know, as I say, there are these other injuries that we-, we It's a huge explosion. Yeah, I mean, injuries to the lung. You know, we're not doing lung transplants or injuries to the kidney. But um, we were able to rescue uh, more than 90% of these people. So, um, of course, that's, you know, losing 29 people um, is very, very sad. Serious blow to our morale. But... Um, in the context of the magnitude of this accident, you know, we, we, we calculate that there were 31 deaths. Um, this is, you know, a huge, huge accident. Probably 31 people die every day mining coal in China. So to have only 31 deaths from this accident is, a, I would say, somewhat of a miracle. Yes, yes. And how long were you there uh, treating these patients? Well, uh, I mean, I was there pretty intensively for two or three years. Um, but our, you know, our work continues because, um, you know, after this, you know, of course, the patients we treated need to be followed naturally. And um, but, um, you know, the, the focus after the acute accident is, of course, on the long-term consequences. And that's fundamentally an issue of, you know, did the radiation release cause an increased number of cancers? Did it cause increased birth defects? Uh, did it cause increased genetic abnormalities? Those are the the, I mean, there are lots of other things, I mean, that I'm not expert in, for example, the, the psychological impact, the social impact, the economic impact. But from a medical perspective, um, you know, we're interested in um, the, these, the, the dominant issue, of course, is cancer, the dominant issue. Right. So, I mean, there, there seems to be quite a diversity of opinion on the long-term health impacts of Chernobyl. Um, you, you look at Greenpeace and they're saying that millions have died and Helen Caldicott says, it, you know, it's worse than the Black Death. And then if you read the, the WHO reports and the UNSCAR panel reports, and they said, you know, maybe 100 people have died. Uh, there's been a significant uptick in thyroid cancers because they weren't able to quarantine the milk just immediately after. Uh, but they've, I think the, the latest UN numbers are that no more than 4,000 cancer deaths in total could be attributed to this. And, and none of them will be statistically detected. So, you know, 
surely the data is available. Why is there such a diversity of opinion on this? Well, um, you know, radiation is something very difficult for people to understand. You know, we can't see it, we can't taste it, we can't feel it. I mean, as opposed to other potential danger, I mean, you have a hurricane, you have a flood, you have an earthquake, there's something that you can see. So human beings, um, but, but you and I, you know, we could be receiving a lethal dose of radiation during the course of this interview. We would have no idea. Hopefully, hopefully not. But I mean, you're just, we're not equipped to sense radiation. So, so people have a, an exaggerated um, fear. Now, the problem comes, um, well, there's certain things are clear. For example, there's no doubt there was an increase in thyroid cancer in young people, mostly people who were um, under the age of 16 at the time of the accident. There are perhaps seven or 8,000 cases of thyroid abnormalities, mostly thyroid cancers, but also nodules and things in children. And that's, that's something that, that's pretty rare. So I think we can be absolutely certain that thyroid cancer was increased. And that makes a lot of sense because um, an exploded reactor releases radioactive iodine. It gets deposited, especially when it rains, it gets deposited on the grass. And then cows you know, eat the grass. They make milk. Children drink a lot of milk. And so all of this is, is quite sensible. Um, now, when we come to other cancers, we're in, in a more difficult situation. For example, um, after the atomic bomb explosions, leukemia was the most increased cancer. It occurred about 10 years later. So, you know, my colleagues and I in different places in, um, in Russia, in Ukraine, in Belarus, you know, we've looked for an increase in leukemias. And um, with one exception, we haven't found an increase in leukemias. It, um, I mean, this one exception, curiously, is the one kind of leukemia that was not increased after the atomic bomb explosions. So um, it's, it's interesting and um, the people doing the studies are very good, but as you can imagine, um, these, these are difficult studies to do because the Soviet Union disintegrated. And now we're dealing with registries in three different countries. And um, we don't have brilliant epidemiological data of the same quality, let's say, as we have in the United States, where we have a national cancer registry. So um, I would say there is this one report 
of a slight increase in this rare kind of leukemia. And there is one report of a slight increase in breast cancer. But I mean, the good news is we don't see an increase in anything else. Now, of course, the fact that we can't see it, it doesn't mean it hasn't occurred. Um, but it just seems we can't, we can't see it and we can't really know. There's a lot of um, references out there to um, the a spike in cancer deaths and there's you know, birth defects and a lot of these things that, that people will point to as and then blame on the Chernobyl accident. In Eastern Europe, following Chernobyl, they, there's all of these deaths. And there's, you know, the children of Chernobyl charity, they fly these these disadvantaged children around the world and, and raise money for them. What these, you know, there, there's, there's not, the, the science is saying there's not vast numbers of detected cancer. So what is, what's the problem with these, um, these people saying that there's been millions of deaths there? Yeah, well, let, let me just finish for a second with cancer. So, um, I think most most of us, most scientists, but not all scientists, think that there is what we call a linear dose threshold relationship. You know, you increase the dose of radiation, you increase the risk of cancer. Um, that's 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 what we think, but um, we've got a slight problem, and the problem is that. For example, if you live in Los Angeles, like I do, you are going to get less radiation than if you live in Denver, Colorado. Denver, Colorado is higher. It's closer to the sun. And it sits on the Rocky Mountains that have lots of uranium and thorium. So uh, every year, if you live in Denver, you get four times more radiation, background radiation, than you if you live in LA or in New York. Now, do people in Denver have more cancer? The answer is no. So in the range that human beings are exposed to on Earth, we don't really see a relationship between the dose of radiation and the risk of cancer, even though that difference in range is tenfold. But um, so if you take a very small increase risk, you know, let's say it's a very, very, very small increase in risk, but you multiply it by a lot of people. So let's say between the Soviet Union and Europe, we have 400 million people. So if you take this very small risk and you multiply by 400 million, you wind up with a lot of cancers. Um, but as I say, it's, you know, we haven't, except for this chronic lymphocytic leukemia and um, except for perhaps breast cancer, we just haven't seen it and we're probably not going to see it. So, um, you know, I think it, it's more politics than it is science. You know, it's all speculative in the absence of data. Now, birth defects are 
or another matter altogether. Uh, there's really no evidence that the doses of radiation that anyone could have received from Chernobyl could possibly cause birth defects. I mean, we have extensive data from the atomic bomb <clears throat> survivors where there were pregnant women who were exposed to the atomic bomb. And um, we, we have a pretty good estimate of what their dose was. And we know that there were, for example, there were 29 children in the whole atomic bomb population. There were 29 children that we think have some, some degree of mental retardation that occurred as a consequence of their radiation exposure. These were children that were all in the second trimester of pregnancy, and they were all exposed via their mother to a high dose of radiation. So um, it's not possible that there would be birth defects from Chernobyl exposure. I mean, 10% uh, of all birth defects, I mean, 10% of all births in the United States are associated with some sort of abnormality. They can be subtle, they can be. But, you know, it's just human nature. That if you have a birth and someone says, well, I was in Kiev when the Chernobyl accident happens, and now you have a child with a birth defect. I mean, of course, people, just human nature to related to the accident. But it's not really possible. Uh, there were no pregnant women on site or near the reactor complex that could have gotten a dose of radiation that could have caused a birth defect. Now, the last thing are these so-called children of Chernobyl um, with heart defects and so forth and so on. Um, well, I have to say, in all honesty, this has nothing to do with the Chernobyl accident. Um, I, I'm absolutely delighted that these children could be, you know, could get additional medical care. They could be brought to um, other countries for, for example, complex cardiac surgery. I visited these centers in uh, Cuba and in Israel, uh, and, and I applaud every effort to help children with medical issues, but it's, it's, it's um, I would say extraordinarily unlikely that any of these medical problems are in any way related to radiation released from the Chernobyl nuclear power facility accident. Yeah, I think that's the main issue with all of these claims is that they don't have a an appropriate control group when comparing the um, the outcomes. So yes, millions of people did die due to cancer, but millions of people would have died due to cancer anyways um, without the Chernobyl accident. And I think that's the difference between the scientific approach and the rhetorical approach is that you, you need to have 
this this little bit of skepticism and compare <clears throat> what might happen in a in a situation where you have the collapse of the Soviet Union and the infrastructure and the hospitals and the healthcare all being affected and drinking and smoking levels increasing significantly in the populace uh, following this this tragedy effectively so i think that's one of the things that a lot of people don't see when they are looking at these 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 claims of of the impact of chernobyl right well it's not i mean of course epidemiological studies are the you know the the, the top of the pyramid of scientific evidence but um you know for example in the atomic bomb survivor study we have uh 90,000 90, people that were exposed to the atomic bomb radiations. But we also have a group of about 30,000 people that were residents of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but were not in the city at the time the bomb exploded. So we can compare the rate of cancer between the exposed people and the unexposed people, after adjusting for age and sex and socioeconomic status and things like that, um, we're not we're not going to get those kind of data from these this accident for a whole variety of reasons. But we, you know, we don't rely only on epidemiological data. We there's you know something we we have data from animals. You know we have. We have lots of other resources. You know, we can expose animals to these doses of radiation and see what happens to them. Um, you know, we can look at, at the genetic markers and things like that. But I think the thing we have to remember, um, I mean, the unfortunate news is that about 40% 40, 40 of us, four in every 10 people, are going to get cancer in their lifetime. Okay? Your, your chance and my chance of getting cancer is four in 10. So, you know, it's, it's a common event. Um, and unfortunately, a common event. It doesn't mean you're gonna die of cancer, but you have a four in 10 chance of getting cancer. Now, if you were in Kiev, or you were a radiation worker at Chernobyl, or what the Russians call liquidators, you know, 40% of those people are going to get cancer. 100% of those people are going to think that their cancer was caused by radiation. I mean, that, it's just human nature. Um, we, we all look for a cause, you know, I. When I treat children uh, with leukemia, very, very often the mothers will ask me, well, you know, I used an electric blanket when I was pregnant or our house is near a high, wire, a high voltage transmission wire. And this is unfortunate because it makes the, the parent, the mother feel like they're responsible for the child's leukemia, which is not the case. I mean, these things, these bad things happen, unfortunately. And most of them are random. Most 
most cases of cancer occur randomly. Now, we can make our chances worse. I mean, you can smoke cigarettes and increase your, your risk of lung cancer 20-fold. But even if you don't do that, you still have a very substantial chance that you're going to get cancer in your lifetime. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, and in fact, you know, you're looking at public safety guidelines for, for radiation and they're, you know, they're typically set at levels to prevent premature death at the level of something like one in a million. Uh, whereas the average Chernobyl liquidator was exposed to something like 120 millisieverts of uh, radiation dose. This, in terms of cancer risk of, of that exposure, that acute exposure, it's, it's roughly equivalent to drinking a bottle of wine every week in terms of your lifetime cancer risk change, like about 1% increase, I think, <clears throat> is what that's associated with. Well, it would never be a 1% increase. You know, um, I think to put this in perspective, you know, one half of our radiation dose, about two or 300 millisieverts a year, comes from what's called background radiation. It's just living on planet Earth. You know, the Earth is radioactive. Uh, each of us is radioactive. You and I are radioactive. Um, if you have, you know, marble countertops in your kitchen, they are radioactive. Um, if your partner or you get porcelain tooth implants, they're radioactive. So, um, and, and we're getting radiation from the cosmos, from the sun, from the cosmos. So we accumulate about 200 millisieverts every year from just living on Earth. As I mentioned, if you live in Denver, you get more. If you live in LA, you get less. Um, there are a lot of other advantages to living in Los Angeles, of course, besides a lower radiation dose, um, like pleasant weather. But now, the other half of our radiation dose comes from man-made sources. And the major, major contributor are, are doctors. Doctors ordering x-rays, doctors ordering CT scans, um, doctors ordering radioisotope scans. So for the US population, on average, half of your radiation dose is going to come from your physician. Now, um, the contribution of nuclear energy radiation from a nuclear power plant is about less than 1% of our annual radiation dose. So it's very small. And one thing I like to, uh, to point out to people is this. You know, when you burn coal, you know, a coal-fired electrical plant, well, when you burn coal, you know, of course, coal comes from the earth and coal, the coal you burn contains uranium. It contains thorium. I mean, it's, it's, it's in there in the coal. So when you burn coal, you release radiation to produce electricity. When you run a nuclear power station, you that where you don't have an accident, you release radiation. So how do they compare? Well, if we look 
at the same amount of electricity, let's say one gigawatt of electricity coming from a coal plant and coming from a nuclear plant. Well, the coal plant releases 10 times more radiation than a nuclear plant. The, the, the level of radiation, if you've ever been to Grand Central Station, and there's a little kiosk in the center of Grand Central Station with a clock on it, where you can get information about trains coming and going. Well, if you stand at that kiosk in Grand Central Station, the dose of radiation you're receiving from the marble floor and walls and things, that dose of radiation is a higher dose of radiation than we allow in a nuclear power plant. So, you know, everything is relative. Um, when, you, when, you use, when you use the sun to make electricity, you know, you have to bring up a lot of copper from the earth to make these copper pipes. Uh, it, again, if you compare the amount of radiation released per gigawatt of electricity from a solar station compared to a nuclear power station, making electricity from the sun is, releases much more radiation than a nuclear power plant. So, you know, and I could go on. I mean, I could tell you the dangers. I could tell you that the hydroelectric, the Aswan High Dam uh, in Egypt that produces electricity along the Nile, the Aswan High Dam caused about a million cases of blindness because the, the dam slowed the, slowed the rate of the flow of water in the Nile. And these insects that carry an infectious agent, chlamydia, they are able to thrive and then they cause blindness in people. So um, not only that, but the S1 high dam by slowing the flow of water allowed a, a parasite called Schistosoma hematobium to thrive. And so we have many cases of liver cancer caused by the use of hydroelectric power in Egypt. So, you know, none of these things is simple. They all have their trade-offs. And it, it would be incredibly naive to think that any one of these things is without, you know, its cost. So after all you've seen at Chernobyl and, you know, trading radiation, um, it sounds like you're still very pro-nuclear power as a, a, a clean and safe method of producing electricity. Is that a fair characterization? I mean, um, you know, a Ferrari is a good car. If you put a monkey in the driver's seat, it becomes a lethal weapon. Um, so, you know, um, th there is no real way out of the current climate crisis. Um, 
other than nuclear energy. I mean, of course, we need to do other things. We need to conserve energy. We need to take advantage of renewable sources and all of these things. But if we look at the global picture, um, it's very hard to imagine any way to stop further global warming without nuclear energy. So, but of course, it has to be used judiciously. I mean, it has to be, we have to be careful. We have to make sure that people developing it and using it, uh, it has to be cost effective. You know, if it's, if it costs twice as much to produce electricity from nuclear compared with coal, well, no CEO of an energy company, you know, is, you know, he doesn't want to see his salary diminished. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that have to be in place. Um, and of course, our ultimate goal is, is fusion, not fission. Um, you know, and there have been some, you know, significant, very recent, within the last month at the National Ignition Laboratory at the Lawrence Livermore Labs, there have been a bit of significant progress on the road to using fusion. I mean, again, that's a long way off, but that, you know, that, that should be our goal. Yeah, I, I agree that um, fusion has had a lot of um, uh, progress lately. They actually did some, a series of podcasts reviewing uh, the current state of the nuclear fusion market. But you, you point out the fact that you know the cost is very important, and we need to be very uh, cognizant of 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 what each type of power costs, so that we don't you know create energy energy poverty effectively. And you know, and the problem I think behind a lot of this is the asymmetry of the regulations. As you say, the coal plants are allowed to distribute radiation at will, ten times more than nuclear power plants are. I'm I'm somewhat gobsmacked that we allow this. This situation of asymmetry in our in our um, regulations, like in, in you know particulate pollution from burning coal, is you know above ten micrograms per cubic meter in in a lot of cities, most cities, uh, and you know this is a this increases your relative all cause mortality by about eight percent per year. After you know only twelve years, this doubles your risk of death, but safety levels are set at 25 micrograms per cubic meter, which is like a 20% mortality increase per year. It's way out, of, it seems way out of whack. I mean, you know, it's it's similar to, you know, having radiation levels a hundred times what they are currently a safety level. So it's this, this is what I try to look at in my podcast is to highlight the asymmetry and the irrationality in the, in the guidelines and try to get these things on a level playing field so that we can get the best solution possible. Now, well, I mean, it's, I think there are two fundamental issues. I mean, the most fundamental issue is we, we, we have to try to fight this uphill battle to get people to understand radiation. I mean, this has to start in school um, because if you, you know, radiation is part of our lives. I mean, in every regard, I mean, we have nuclear weapons. We have, you know, we have, um, 
nuclear energy. We have people, you know, doctors ordering CT scans unnecessarily. So, I mean, ideally, we would have people understand radiation. Um, but the other issue is that um, we need a long-term energy policy. Energy policies can't be driven by an administration that is in power for four or eight years. They, they can't be driven by a CEO of a company who, who's going to stay in office for five years and whose bottom line is to deliver quite rightly, quite appropriately to the shareholders. Now, I mean, take the situation in California, where I live. We have three nuclear power plants. They're, they're all offline. Why are they offline? Well, they're predominantly offline. I mean, there's a, there's a number of, you know, mistakes that were made putting a power plant on a fault line or putting a, a, a containment vessel in upside down. But um, the fundamental reason that they're offline is that the cost of making electricity from nuclear is more than the cost from coal. Now, I don't think that people realize that these plants, they're offline, but we're paying to maintain them. You know, they're, they're not shut down. They are, wait, you know, there are times when we would need to rely on them. And um, so we are paying millions of dollars a year to keep these plants in a potentially operational state um, and not using them to produce electricity. So this, in some regards, is the worst of all possible worlds. So, uh, you know, it's, it's an uphill struggle. Um, it's, it's a problem globally. Germany's got the same problem. <laughs> I mean, we, we have to do what we can to, to try to, to educate people, to try to educate politicians. I mean, I haven't even spoken of the issue of nuclear terrorism. There's a lot of issues that I would love to discuss with you. This has been um, great, uh, a great wide-ranging discussion on, on these topics. And, you know, there's nuclear terrorism, linear no-threshold theory, uh, all sorts of interesting things that we could chat about. Uh, but I think we're reaching the end of our time period, so uh, I'm going to have to... Um, belay that for now, but I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your your expertise and your experience with us, and and giving us some insight into, uh, you know, what what you went through in Chernobyl and, and what you're doing now to follow up with that and understand exactly what the impacts are. And I appreciate you know your your work on and on spreading the rational view on radiation uh, to the general public because it's a it's a necessary work that has to be done. So thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today. Thank you for the invitation. And for coming on, I'm going to send you a t-shirt for The Rational View, uh, uh, just as a, as a token of your time. So thank you so much. Okay, take care. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page 
at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.